again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-supported community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your fourth-week host, Stu Levitan, and I am very excited about today's show because our guest is not only a Madison author, he is, by the objective criteria of sales and critical acclaim, Madison's greatest author, David Marinus, whose new book is about America's greatest athlete. It's called Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe, published last week by the good people at Simon & Schuster, and already number two on the New York Times bestseller list. As you probably know, David is a two-time recipient of the Pulitzer Prize for his work with the Washington Post, where he remains an associate editor, and is the author of 12 previous books, including biographies of Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Vince Lombardi, Roberto Clemente, and a history that was in large part about Madison and the UW in October 1967 called They Marched into Sunlight. His Madison credentials are top-notch. He was not born here, but was brought up here as the son of Mary Marinus, an editor with the UW Press, and my former boss at the Capital Times, Elliot Marinus, who is the subject of his most recent book, A Good American Family. And he and his wife, Linda, have a house on the near west side of Madison, where they summer whenever they can. I usually spend a couple of minutes setting up the book, but you already know who Jim Thorpe is, and there is so much to talk about in these 626 pages of text and notes that I'll just say I've had the pleasure of talking with David about his last seven books, and it is a real delight to welcome him now to Madison Bookbeat to talk about Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. Thank you, Stuart. Always great to talk with you. I appreciate having you here. appreciate having you back in Madison for the summer. I called Thorpe America's greatest athlete. Is there any real dispute about that? Well, there always can be disputes because it's, in a sense, a meaningless argument. You know, it's hard to compare athletes from different generations. There's different training methods, different diets, different coaches, um, you know, different equipment. So I think it's it doesn't make much sense to do that. But but in terms of what Jim Thorpe did, his accomplishments are unparalleled. No other athlete in history has won the decathlon and pentathlon gold medals, been an All-American football player several seasons, been the first great professional football player, been the first president of the National Football League, or what became it, and a Major League Baseball player. You know, that trifecta has never been done before or since. He also was great at just about anything. He was he was a wonderful ballroom dancer. He was a good ice hockey player. I hear he could even play marbles really well. Nibs, as I believe they used to call them. Yes. He was an American hero, but not at the height of his fame, an American citizen, even yes. though President Taft's speechwriters maybe thought he was. And this is part of the paradox of white culture, both honoring and diminishing Native Americans. Is that really the subtext of his life and your biography of him? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, you know, he he accomplished great things. He suffered greatly. And I saw in his life a way to sort of emblemize what was happening in the entire Native American uh, society during the period of, of his uh, life from 1887 to 1953. You know, he was born the year of the Dawes Act, um, which essentially was one of those, you know, this is after the genocide of the mid 19th century. But then the idea was to to try to assimilate and acculturate Native Americans in every way possible. The Dawes Act took away their communal land and gave them smaller pieces of, of property um, over a 25 year period. They had to sort of earn their way to it and earn their way to citizenship, quote unquote. Um, So yes, um, absolutely, I saw that as as a central thread of this book. It's really the reason I wrote the book. Thorpe was not a reservation or so-called blanket Indian, but he was a proud Indian. Did his sense of what that meant in America change over the course of his life? It certainly did. You know, I think that that during his the peak of his athletic prowess, he was more concentrating on, on sports. And then as his athletic talents diminished, 
I think he sort of developed a stronger sensibility about Native American activism. And that came out most strongly, I would say, when he ended up in Los Angeles on the fringes of the Hollywood studios and was pushing for the studios to hire actual Native Americans to play Indians as opposed to white people in war paint or grease paint. Um, and also to, to work uh, to better the portrayal of Indians in those movies, the Westerns. So I think that that and plus, um, as he got older, he thought more about the inequities of his life, how he had suffered in losing his gold medals and uh, became a, a stronger activist for his people. And in Hollywood, his fellow Indians called him caregiver. Yes, Akapamana, which was second Fox for caregiver, because he really became their spokesman. Um, he was the best known of all of the Native Americans there. And he helped organize them and, and lobbied for them to get those studio jobs. As regards his Indianness, how did press coverage of Thorpe change as his fame grew and then faded? Well, it's a really interesting dichotomy, Stu. Um, you know, from the very beginning and throughout that entire period, the press relied on the classic disparaging stereotypes in describing any Indian doing anything. You know, it was all about going on the warpath and taking scalps and every... Um, notable Native American was called chief. Um, so all of that was going on. But at the same time, you know, in terms of that dichotomy of, of romanticizing and diminishing at the same time, most of the press corps was entirely supportive of Jim Thorpe. You know, when he lost his medals, um, Grantland Rice and, and almost every major sports columnist in the country um, thought it was unfair and pushed for Thorpe's restitution of those medals and, and were basically sympathetic to him um, his entire life in their own way. Which, which was still inherently racist. Uh, yes, uh, you can say that absolutely. <laughs> there were a lot of newspapers back then and, and, the, and the sports writers had free reign to write at length and with tremendous purple prose. Yeah. As a modern journalist, what did you make of all the sports writers you, you read from the, the teens into the 50s? Well, I've become accustomed to it from um, my previous biographies, of, especially of Vince Lombardi. But, um, you know, the, they're, they're myth makers. And this was an era before television um, when people got their, you know, their news and sports from writers, from newspapers. There were so many of them. And the writers competed to sort of see who could write the, the, the best doggerel. I mean, it, it's impossible to read a, a newspaper from that era and not see somebody trying to write a poem about whatever they were covering, you know, or, uh, or the purple prose that you talked about. So, you know, I mean, on the one hand, it was corny, overblown, uh, romanticized, um, not authentic, not realistic, I should say. On the other hand, you know, it, if you, it's sort of like appreciating Roundy, you know, the old, <laughs> the old writer for the State Journal, you know, trying to interpret what they were saying. Um, it's just, it was a different era, a different way of writing, and I just accept it as that. <laughs> Even Grantland Rice wrote Doggerel. Oh, absolutely. They all did. <laughs> sometimes it was fun. You know, sometimes it was, most of the time it was incredibly stupid. But the fact that the sports writers and the other journalists were learned enough to know an Alexander Pope poem from the 18th century and could use it in shorthand speaks volumes about both journalism and the reading public's level of knowledge. Isn't that so? I mean, I, I tried to figure out who first brought that stanza back into the popular culture. The, the phrase, lo, the poor Indian, which is from an Alexander Pope uh, poem. Um, I couldn't, I mean, uh, but but by the time that Thorpe came along, um, it was used as shorthand for anything having to do with Native Americans, lo, the poor Indian, um, whether they were doing something good or bad or winning in an athletic contest or, or um, struggling uh, financially or whatever, 
it was low, the poor Indian. And it became so commonplace that everybody knew what it meant. You know, I found stories where you just had to say low or low pole. You know, a Variety magazine, which is noted for its, you know, own lexicon, would just every every story about a Native American would be low pole. You know, and that meant low, the poor Indian, you know. So somehow it was deeply etched into the uh, the newspaper culture of the 1910s, 20s, into the 30s. And the fact that the reading public was educated enough to, to get the reference really speaks well of, of the public. I guess so, Stu, but I, I don't know if they knew the Pope poem, you oh. know, but they knew oh. that, that they knew that that's what it meant, right? Okay, okay. <laughs> Thorpe was of the Thunder Clan of the Sac and Fox uh, nation. His paternal grandmother was a descendant of the great warrior Blackhawk, and his mother told him that he was actually the reincarnation of Blackhawk. Did Thorpe believe that? And do you think he saw the same ironic parallels in their lives that you see between Blackhawk and Thorpe? I think he did sort of feel um, an obligation to sort of carry on the Blackhawk tradition. Whether he felt he was honestly the reincarnation, I couldn't tell. But he definitely felt that from his mother. Um, I don't think he saw the the parallels that I write about in the opening chapter, because I'm not sure he knew the entire history of Blackhawk. So I wouldn't want to impose that on him. But it's, there certainly are the parallels. I mean, they both um, became the most uh, famous Native Americans of their eras, 80 years apart. Um, Blackhawk was captured after the quote-unquote Blackhawk War, which was really a massacre of his Sac and Fox people when they were trying to get back into land that had been taken from him on the Wisconsin and Illinois sides of the Mississippi River. Um, he was captured and taken as a prisoner of war all the way across uh, America from, from St. Louis to Washington, D.C. and down to Richmond and up to New York and Philadelphia. And wherever he went, he was greeted as this some kind of uh, noble, incredibly incredible figure. There, you know, the the crowds came out by the hordes to see him. Uh, there was what what the press called Black Hockeyana, meaning they were just enraptured by him. Um, and in some sense, I parallel that with with Jim Thorpe coming back from his incredible performance in Stockholm at the Olympics and being in parades and and paraded around as this great noble Indian figure in the same way Blackhawk was. The Indian activist Susan Schoen Harjo was important in some of the early research to your book, and she was yeah. also one of the people who was most responsible for getting the Washington football team to finally change its name. What does she and the other activists think about the Chicago hockey team being named after Blackhawk. Is that as objectionable as the Washington football team? I haven't asked her that question, but I know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, all of those ways of representing Native Americans without their um, input into it and is something that they find objectionable because it, again, it's the romanticization and diminishment of their people at the same time. So Suzanne, um, who by the way, won the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2014 from Barack Obama for all of her work, not just in getting the Washington football team to change its name, but working on that issue throughout the country in terms of Indian symbols being misused or misapplied um, in various ways. And also just her activism in trying to um, give the Native American peoples their they're just due in terms of uh, land and property rights and and every, you know anything else. Um, she's she's she was very important to to my understanding, and I felt it it uh, essential for me to spend time with her before I launched into this book. And in fact, you talked you also talked to Patty Lowe to see yeah. if you were the right person to write this. If it was okay for you to write this book. Yeah, Patty Lowe, I had known from, from her days in Madison at, at the University of Wisconsin. And she was, by the time I started this book, she was at Northwestern, a big loss, I think, for the University of Wisconsin. 
Um, but I wrote her and said, Patty, I'm thinking of doing a biography of Jim Thorpe. What do you think? And she said, wrote back, yes, emphatically, yes. She wanted me to do it. And so she was also incredibly important throughout the process. Um, I had her read the manuscript entirely, um, uh, you know, to make sure that I didn't make too many mistakes in terms of my interpretation of, of Native American language and events that, you know, I was not an expert on it and just was learning. Um, I also talked to uh, Ned Blackhawk, um, who had been at Wisconsin and was a friend of Patty's, was now at Yale, and spent a day with him, or several hours with him up at Yale to talk about those same issues. And you just sort of get the sense of, of could I do this book and, and how to do it. And thanks to uh, Suzanne Schoen Harjo, you also got on the trail of a remarkable archive. That was just, I mean, Branch Rickey said, luck's the residue of design. I don't know this, the, whether that was the case here or not, but yeah, I was interviewing, talking to Suzanne, and she said, you know, my father um, was once interviewed by someone because he had met the great man, Jim Thorpe. So I said, well, who was that who did the interview? And she said it was David Hurst Thomas. She and David were on the first board of directors of the Smithsonian's National Museum of the American Indian. He was up at the Museum of Natural History in New York, the chief uh, anthropologist there. And so I wrote him, uh, went up to see him on the fifth floor of that grand old building in, on the Upper West Side, um, and I went to his office. Uh, his, he was at his desk, which had once been Margaret Mead's desk. And uh, we talked for a while. He said that he had, early in his, his young adulthood, he'd worked for the Oakland Raiders and Al Davis. And he'd read my book on Lombardi and loved it. And then we kept talking. And finally, after a couple of hours, he said, okay, well, you're the one. I was obsessed with Jim Thorpe. I wanted to write his biography. I just couldn't figure out how to do it, but I know you can. I have eight boxes of archival material that I accumulated over many years, and I want you to have them. So, you know, I had gone up there on the train. I couldn't take them back to Washington right away, but I went back to Washington, got my station wagon, drove up, got a friend in New York, and loaded up those eight boxes. And they were, you know, they turned out to be one of the 22 archives that I used in researching this book, but a very important one. And speaking of your writing method, the first leg of your research table in starting a new book is to go to the places where things happened. COVID got in the way this time. You did get to the Carlisle School, but you did not get to live in Oklahoma the way you and Linda lived in Green Bay for winter. Right. You didn't get to uh, get you didn't get to Stockholm uh -huh. to go into the stadium. What do you think you as an author and we as readers lost because you weren't able to go to those places? I'm sure there are things about Oklahoma that I that would have seeped into my subconscious at least. I don't think it would have affected the, the writing, obviously, but it would have affected it in some other ways. Um, because I believe that when I go someplace, it just changes my perspective, no matter what I'm writing. Um, as for stock, so that's Oklahoma. And I certainly wish I could have spent more time there than I did. As for Stockholm, I really don't think I lost anything, probably, because I discovered this um, documentarian, Adrian Wood, who'd been uh, hired by the International Olympic Committee to take all of the old newsreels and path films and Swedish films of those Olympics and modernize them into a two-hour documentary uh, without sound. Um, and he, I spent time talking to him. He let me look at it. And it was incredible. So I really felt like I was there, not in 2020 or whatever, but in 1912. Um, and it, I, you know, I watched it over and over again, um, took notes on what I was seeing, and I was really able to feel like I was there in 1912. So the only one who really lost out on that was Linda. Yeah, we're, I, I owe her Stockholm. <laughs> Absolutely. And by watching that film, you were able to pretty well determine that 
the the purported exchange between King Gustav and Thorpe, you saw the most wonderful athlete in the world, thanks King, probably did not happen. Well, there's no sound, so you don't know for sure. Um, uh, you know, I, I looked at the 15 major American newspapers and the British papers, and none of them had that quote um, until about a week later, and somehow it got into the public. But the thanks, King, you know, I compare that to like, you know, a Yogi Berra-ism or whatever. Um, he said, thank you. I mean, Thorpe himself insisted that he didn't say thanks, King, and I believe him on that. Um, it Again, it, it's kind of funny. It's also kind of meant to imply, well, he's just a rube who didn't know better on how to respond to a king, and that I found that a little bit condescending. And an and ignorant an ignorant Indian yes. who, who who didn't know any better. We're right. talking with David Marinus. His new bestseller is Pathlight by Lightning: The Life of Jim Thorpe. Get back to something you alluded to a few moments ago. The sports biographies you've written are about protagonists who a have a dramatic arc in their life but which also lets you write about those big issues of American history and society. And that thumbnail fits Jim Thorpe to a T. And yet it took 15 years for a fan's suggestion that you write about Thorpe to reach that critical mass of obsession that you need to commit to a new book. Was there a predicate event four years ago that made you go, aha, or was it just a gradual realization that this would be the way to complete that sports trilogy? Good question. You know, I mean, it was 20 years ago, at least, that Norbert Hill uh, from the United Nation, uh, a Green Bay guy, uh, came to one of my events in Denver and said, he actually gave me some papers he had and said, Jim Thorpe should be your next biography. I think really, Stu, it was just that I had so many other things going on. Um, and I didn't want to write another sports biography right after uh, Clemente and Rome 1960. Um, so it just got onto the back burner a little bit. Um, or, no, it wasn't even on the back burner. I wasn't even thinking about it. Um, but but Hill had planted a seed that started to grow sometime in the mid, uh, around 2014 or 15 when I was doing the Detroit story. And then I, you know, I started actually thinking about it. I was worried that I, that I could capture his athleticism, but could I get inside the human being? I wasn't sure of that. Um, and then I decided to go for it um, and was obsessed by the time I started. Well, do you feel that you got into his head as deeply as you got into Bill Clinton's and Barack Obama's and some of the other people you've you've written about? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I think I was I was struggling with that until I was able to find a real cache of his letters. Um, so there are two chapters in the book that are really built around letters that he wrote to um, his second wife or girlfriend at first and then wife. And then I found more letters um, at the National Museum of the American Indian that um, were in the archive of his daughter, Grace. And so once I was able to feel his voice um, and feel him as a human being as opposed to this archetype, I started to feel better about capturing the, the real person. Those letters to Frida are endearing to his little kitten. Those those are really very humanizing letters. Yeah, they are. And they're heartbreaking in the end, you know, because he's down in Florida in the second batch of letters. Um, and he's almost like a Willie Loman character. You know, he keeps waiting for this opportunity. He says something's good going to happen. He's going to sell real estate. He's going to promote boxing in Cuba. All of these things and uh, that he things are right on the edge of happening and none of them ever happened. Well, on that point, athletically, his life is one of transcendent greatness, yeah. but outside the fields of play, he suffers one disappointment and heartbreak after another. His twin brother and firstborn son die in childhood. Yeah. He has three stormy marriages. He struggles and hustles to support his family and never achieves the financial success or stability, remotely commensurate with his accomplishments. He doesn't always act in his own best interests. Yeah. Yet you don't see his life as a tragedy, do you? In the end, I didn't. Um, you know, as I was 
writing the last several chapters of the book and watching him struggle, I really kept saying, come on, look, something good's got to happen to him, you know? And it really doesn't. Um, but then I started to remember why I did the book in the first place, which was to use his life and the details of his life to represent both that and something larger, which was the course of events for the Native American indigenous population um, over that period of time. And, you know, I saw that early on in, in sort of the peak of his athleticism in 1915, the most popular statue in America was, was called The End of the Trail. And it evoked this sensibility that, <laughs> there you go, Stuart, that, uh, that the the time of the of the of the Indian had passed, that manifest destiny and progress had made them irrelevant. And at the time there were under 300,000 Native Americans left after the genocide of the mid-19th century and the assimilation and acculturation processes after that. Um, and so that could be viewed as a tragedy too, but their story is not a tragedy. It's one of perseverance, and figuring out how to survive in a hostile culture, which they have done marvelously in the years since. The population of the Native Americans has grown considerably. Um, they, all the efforts to rid them of their Indianness, um, to take away their language and culture, um, did not succeed in the end. Um, that there's a strong movement back towards all of that um, in recent years. And I viewed Jim Thorpe the same way. You know, he was beat down. He had many problems that society put upon him, some of his own doing. But he kept pushing. He kept trying to persevere. And so I see it more as a story of survival against the odds than as a pure tragedy. So you admire his perseverance and persistence and indomitable spirit in dealing with one setback after another. But on a personal level, regarding him as a man and a husband and a father, do you like him? Um, well, I, you know, for all of my characters, I try to view them realistically, where there are times when I like them and times when I don't. Because everybody is a mixed bag of, a bag of contradictions. I, overall, yes, I did like him. Um, and... You know, you're right. I mean, he went through three marriages. His children didn't see much of him when they were young. One of his daughters, Grace, was at the Haskell Institute at age eight, and he came there to perform at halftime, and she didn't recognize him. She had, you know, he had to reintroduce himself to her because he'd seen her so seldomly. But when she was a teenager, she lived with her dad. She preferred him to her mother, actually. And all seven of the kids, three girls and four boys, uh, three daughters, four sons, over the course of time as they were adults, they came to understand their father, accept him, and honor him, and support him um, deeply when he was alive and, and after he died. Um, but I saw him as a good-hearted, um, overly generous, troubled uh, human being. And you know, he wasn't mean. He didn't. He didn't do anything nasty to anybody ever. Um, it's all relative, but yeah, I liked him. And all the kids turned out very well. They certainly did. The, you know, the, the daughters all got graduate degrees. Um, the sons were very successful in the military. The grandchildren and great-grandchildren. The legacy is one of, you know, of not just survival, but prevailing. Um, that, that Thorpe larger family has done very well. On the matter of the trilogy, the, the Vince Lombardi, Roberta Clemente, Jim Thorpe, other than being outsiders who played outsized roles in sports and society, and sometimes in roles they were assigned, were there any personality attributes or other elements common to them all? Well, they all had a strong will to persevere and overcome obstacles. I mean, that's sort of what you're saying other than that. But um you know, they all faced difficult obstacles. You know, uh, uh, Lombardi um, struggled for 20 years before he got a shot in Green Bay to finally coach and then was ready for it. Um, Roberto Clemente had overcome the the obstacles of race and language. And Thorpe, of course, had to deal with uh, the prejudices against a Native American. Um, 
So I'd say will, perseverance, and talent in all three cases. Um, when the moment arose for them to rise, they did. It's a good combination. The story of Thorpe's athletic greatness starts at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School, which was not a high school. It was not a college, but an assimilationist institution founded yeah. on the principle of killing the Indian and saving the man, which was actually a progressive alternative to literally killing the Indian. Exactly. How did he come to be there and stay there? And what was his life like for the eight years he was there? Well, he got there at age 16. Um, his mother was gone. Um, I think his father and that latest stepmother didn't want anything to do with him anymore. He'd been at the Haskell Institute and at the Second Fox School in Oklahoma before that. He didn't really like school. But at age 16, he was sent off to the Carlisle Indian Industrial School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Um, in 1904, he arrived. For the first three years, he mostly wasn't there because the, the school had this sort of scam going where they would send their students off on what they called outings to, to work on farms in the, in the area of Pennsylvania and Maryland and New Jersey. And the students would get paid a nominal sum, which would go back to the school for the school to distribute. And the school at the same time was getting money from the federal government for each of those students that they had counted on their rolls. So anyway, Thorpe wasn't around for the first three years. By 1907, um, he, he was discovered uh, for the track team after jumping over the high jump bar at six feet in his overalls. And a year later, he was the star of the football team, and, and it just went on from there. Thorpe's experience at Carlisle was a mixed bag, but mostly for him, it was good because he was the star athlete. And it was where he rose to fame. For many other students who were brought there against their will, um, it was uh, bad or worse, a death trap. Literally. Yeah, literally. The, the most uh, haunting experience of my reporting was going um, with Linda to Carlisle and seeing the, um, the cemetery, the student cemetery, with 180-some grave sites of kids who gone there starting in 1879 all the way through and died while they were there. He returned to Carlisle in 1912, largely trained for the Olympics, which he dominated. And as of a few weeks ago, he is once again the undisputed gold medalist in the decathlon and the pentathlon. Explain, explain briefly how dominant he was in those games, how he came to lose his medals and records and why this reveals the legendary football coach pop Warner to have been an innovative coach and a lousy human being. Yeah. I mean, Thorpe did dominate in those games. I mean, he competed in what you would call it 15 events plus a couple of others that he did individual events. Um, but the pentathlon is five events. The uh, decathlon is 10 events. Um, he, trounced the field in the pentathlon, and then outdid the other his opposition in the decathlon by a greater margin than anyone in history. Um, he competed in a couple events uh, after he misplaced his shoes and he was wearing um, different size shoes. He had to wear two socks on one shoe um, and just to make them fit, he still performed marvelously with that. Um, so, he was, you know, as the king might have said, the greatest athlete in the world when that all was said and done and was greatly honored. Came back to uh, Carlisle that fall and was a star football player again. And then in January, after his final season, um, a story broke that he'd played minor league baseball in the Eastern Carolina League. He had done that in 1909 and 19, 1910, um, playing for the Rocky Mount Railroaders and the Fayetteville Highlanders for about two bucks a day or $30 a, a month. Um, at the time, hundreds of college athletes were playing summer baseball for a little bit of money. Most of them were doing it under aliases. Dwight Eisenhower played under the name Wilson in the Kansas State League. Um, the Eastern Carolina League where Thorpe played 
was said to have so many aliases. They call it the Pocahontas League because everyone was named John Smith. Um, Thorpe played under the name Jim Thorpe. He never tried to hide it. Uh, his name was in the newspapers from Raleigh to Charlotte um, to uh, Rocky Mount to Fayetteville uh, every day, you know, for almost every day for for two summers. And yet when in 1913 in January, when a reporter in Worcester, Mass, heard, got a tip that there was a, a manager of an Eastern Carolina League team um, in town who had managed Jim Thorpe professionally in the Eastern Carolina League. He went and got the story and wrote it, and it was considered this huge scoop all of a sudden. It got in the New York papers and around the country, um, and at that point, the key powerful figures who knew precisely what Jim Thorpe had been doing during those summers lied about it to save their own reputations. The first was Pop Warner, his coach, um, who had several of his uh, athletes playing baseball in the summers. He knew about that. Uh, one of his close friends, another uh, college coach in Pennsylvania, was the scout who brought a lot of those players down to the Eastern Carolina League. Uh, Warner had met with Thorpe a few times during that period when Thorpe was playing baseball, including once when they went hunting together in Oklahoma. So it stretches the imagination to think that he didn't know exactly what Thorpe was doing. He did. And yet when the story broke, Thorpe, Thorpe was the one who was thrown under the bus. Pop Warner said he knew nothing. He wrote the letter of Thorpe's confession, making it sound like Thorpe was just an ignorant Indian. Um, you know, a despicable act by, by Pop Warner. Um, and also James E. Sullivan, who was then the head of the Amateur Athletic Union and the American Olympic Committee, also happened to be on the board of advisors of the Carlisle Athletic Association. He too knew what Thorpe was doing and he too lied about it to save his own skin. So in so many ways, it was a moral failing to, to strip Thorpe of his medals. While hundreds of other athletes were doing the same thing, he was picked out and suffered. It was also technically wrong, it turns out, that, that even if you just looked at it by the rules of the Olympics, there was a rule that said that any challenge of amateurism had to be filed within 30 days of the end of the Olympics. And this didn't happen until six months later. So whether you view it morally or just by technicality, um, Jim Thorpe was done wrong. And it took 110 years until this July for all of his records to be fully restored. Is it at all conceivable that he could have said, hey, Pop, I ain't going to write this letter. You, you, I'm, I'm not going to rewrite this letter in my own hand. You you knew exactly what, what, what was happening. I, I, come on, Pop. Uh, with the power dynamics of that moment, I don't think that was likely, and it didn't happen. Um, you know, Pop Warner was a very powerful figure, much more powerful than Jim Thorpe. And um, Thorpe was an honest human being. He understood what had happened. He might not have, he might have felt he was being treated unfairly, but, but he accepted the fact that he was paid for those games. And Pop Warner manipulated him. They had sort of a, an interesting codependency. I mean, they rose together. Warner um, supported Thorpe in every other way, except when it came to when he was vulnerable himself. In fact, Warner was even more powerful than the superintendent of the school. Oh, absolutely. The superintendent, Moses Friedman, who also knew exactly what Thorpe was doing. And there are documented um, letters between the two of, of, of Friedman telling Thorpe he didn't think he should go play baseball. And then he claimed he, too, didn't know about it. As you alluded to earlier, most people, including the sports writers, thought Thorpe got a raw deal yep. over the, over this instance, both at the time and as the years went on. Avery Brundage, the Olympic muckety-muck, who had also been a teammate of Thorpe's in 1912, must have known how popular an act it would be for the Olympics to restore Thorpe's records and medals. Why didn't he do that? Was he still 
resentful of how badly Thorpe had beaten him in in the in the games, or was he just an evil Nazi loving son of a bitch? Uh, more of the latter than the former, although there probably is a little bit of the envy as well. Uh, you know, as you know, uh, Brundage has been the villain in two of my books and one of my <laughs> sons, right? Who wrote about the 1936 uh, Nazi Olympics. And when you go to the his archive at the University of Illinois and see this, all of these letters he wrote supporting the uh, organizers of the Nazi Olympics, and, uh, and saying that all of the, the American press stories about the evils of Hitler were just American propaganda and not true, and that they were treating the Jewish athletes really well, along with all the other Jews in Germany. You know, it, it's revolting, repellent, um, but, but it, that was every bondage. And, um, you know, so for decades as he rose um, into positions of power, first as the head of the American Olympic Committee and then the president of the IOC in Lausanne, Switzerland, um, he consistently rejected all attempts to restore Thorpe's medals and would often complain that he was the one being um, done unfairly by all of these sports writers who were saying that he should do it. Um, and he was suffering more than Jim Thorpe. Um, he was... Um, I mean, it would come out later about what an incredibly uh, hypocritical human being he was. You know, he had a separate family from his own family. Um, he, everything about him was repugnant. Um, and this was just one part of that, his treatment of Jim Thorpe. Probably, partly racist, uh, definitely, and partly just that he was just a jerk. So first sin is the 36 Olympics, then the 72 Olympics, and then Thorpe. I mean, he's got a trifecta right. of offenses. Trifecta, exactly. yeah, yeah. Um, we're talking with David Marinus. His book is Path Lit by Lightning, The Life of Jim Thorpe. Thorpe's life was filled with extraordinary moments. The, the football games against Harvard and Army, the Olympics, a world tour as a baseball player with the New York Giants. But did the event that you would most like to have witnessed take place right here in Wisconsin? It did. It, it happened in 1922 in Milwaukee. And it just, I mean, I don't know what, I mean, I guess, I guess it's just because I consider these two figures so colossal. But um, Jim Thorpe then was the player coach for an NFL team called the Oorang Indians based in LaRue, Ohio. Oorangs were was a kennel of Airedale dogs, the biggest uh, dog kennel in the world at that point. And the owner of that um, sponsored a football team that got into the NFL. And it was all Native Americans led by Jim Thorpe. It wasn't a particularly good team. Thorpe was um, past his prime at that point, as were two of his former Carlisle teammates who were also excellent football players, um, Joe Guyon and Pete Kallick. Um, the rest of the team was kind of makeshift. <coughs> But they did compete in the NFL. They would travel around to different cities. And, of course, at halftime, they'd expect be expected to perform um, sort of Indian tricks and, um, you know, all of that stuff. Um, but in Milwaukee that year, they played the Milwaukee Badgers, who um, had two incredible figures. Actually, Fritz Pollard, who was the first great African-American professional football player, and Paul Robeson. Pollard had persuaded Robeson to come play there. And Robeson was at, uh, in, at law school at NYU and was actually taking a few courses at Marquette while he played for the Milwaukee Badgers. So maybe a thousand people were at that game witnessing it. Um, Paul Robeson and, Paul, and Jim Thorpe on the same field. Uh, I just find it sort of the one time I really would have wanted to have been there. Robeson, by the way, was the star of the game. He scored two touchdowns and the Badgers won. What was professional football like at this time? It was pretty ragtag operation. Um, it wasn't well organized. <clears throat> this was the beginning of the National Football League, which was the effort to finally organize it. When Thorpe started playing pro football for the Canton Bulldogs in 1915, it was in what was called the Ohio League, which was barely a league. I mean, very few rules. Uh, players 
would go from team to team week by week, depending on who would pay them more. Newt Rockney was said played for seven teams one year. Um, by 22, it was starting to be organized. George Hallis had moved his Decatur Staley's to Chicago. The Bears were there. The Packers entered the league the year before. They're the one team uh, that survived out of all of the small towns that had professional football teams. Green Bay is the one that survived. You know, the Kenton Bulldogs are long gone, and as are most of the other teams. Um, but it was still a secondary sport. It was way below Major League Baseball, college football, tennis, boxing, golf. Pro football was kind of a roustabout sport, way below all the others. Um, Thorpe was getting paid more than anyone else in the league, and it was still about maybe $300 a game. How important was he to the formation of what became the NFL? Well, he was the one known figure. Um, nobody really knew George Hallis yet. He was also part of that formation. Um, Newt Rockney had gone off to, to be the coach of, of Notre Dame. So the one person that everybody knew was Jim Thorpe. And when he came into the league, um, most football historians say that was the key early moment in the NFL. For that year when he was the president in 1920, it was mostly as a figurehead. I don't know that he did anything as president. He was he was still a player coach at that point. Um, but his name was essential um, to lifting the whole league. So Thorpe had the bad timing to be great in football and track and field in an age when there wasn't a lot of money in either. Was baseball his only hope for a successful professional career? I think that's why he kept going back to baseball. That's why he went to play in that summer league. It's why he, he signed with the Giants in 1913. Um, it wasn't his best sport. He was better than Michael Jordan, for sure. Um, he uh, had trouble with the curveball at first. Um, John McGraw, the great manager of the Giants, I think misused Jim Thorpe. He's, he signed him, but then sat him on the bench for most of several seasons. Um, Thorpe finally got a chance in 1919 with the Boston Braves and performed really well. Um, you know, he was the star in Boston for the Braves while Babe Ruth was the star for the Red Sox. Thorpe led the league in hitting almost the entire year. Um, but he, you're right. He never, you know, I mean, a pro football player today can get 240, you know, a baseball player can get a $240 million contract. A pro football player can sign for forty-six or fifty million dollars. Jim Thorpe was getting three hundred bucks, you know, or a few thousand a year. Um, so yeah, he he was great at the wrong time in the wrong sports. You get the sense that if he had a manager who brought him along properly, he could really have had a great career. I think he could have had a very good career. Absolutely, he was fast. He could always steal bases. Um, his power evolved over the course of his career. Um, and when he played a lot, he played pretty well. Um, he did also struggle with alcohol during that period. And it's hard for me to tell um, what behind the scenes was holding him back um, completely. But when he got a chance to play, and the more he played, the better he was. What Thorpe really wanted was to become a coach. Yeah. And he could certainly demonstrate athletic feats such as punting and drop kicking, but did he have the personality and the focus to be a good coach with broad responsibilities? Hard to say, you know, often it's said that the better the athlete, the worse the coach, the worse the athlete, the better the <laughs> coach, you know, that's true in baseball and, and football and, and a lot of sports often because a great athlete has a harder time explaining to mere mortals uh, what they do, because in some ways it's inexplicable. Um, so I'm not sure about that. He was the player coach for the Canton Bulldogs for a few years when they were the world champions. So he did succeed in that sense. He wanted to coach in college and never really got a shot. He was an assistant coach um, at Indiana University before it was the Big Ten um, for one year, but then the head coach got fired and that was the end of that. Um, and for a few decades after that, he kept hoping to get a job in coaching, and it never came. We touched a few moments ago on the connection with 
Paul Robeson. And that's one of the hallmarks of your books is finding these connections that, that you don't expect. And Thorpe's Life features connections with Dwight Eisenhower, George S. Patton, Babe Ruth, Bob Hope, Ted Williams, and an instructor at Carlisle <laughs> who was a big and very perceptive sports fan destined to become one of America's great poets of the 20th century. Yeah, I, I loved finding that and going up to an archive in Philadelphia where this is Marianne Moore, um, you know, uh, an iconic poet um, who lived in Carlisle, grew, you know, basically grew up there with her mother and brother. Her father was had, was in a mental institution, um, and she grew up um, knowing about the Carlisle football team and following it, following Richard Henry Pratt, the founder of Carlisle. And after um, finishing college at Bryn Mawr in Philadelphia, she, she got a job at the Carlisle Indian Industrial School. And she taught Jim Thorpe and the other football players and Thorpe's first wife, Iva Miller, who was also a student there. And when I saw the material at the archive, at her archive in Philadelphia, she talks extensively about all of that, about watching Thorpe, describing, you know, his athletic skills, um, going down to the track field and watching him throw the hammer, um, watching him on the football field, um, walking to uh, to town on the railroad tracks and him, uh, it started to rain and he carried a parasol for her. Um, in so many ways, I mean, I just, I thought it was just an incredible coincidence that Jim Thorpe intersected with Mary Ann Moore. And she wrote, she described him very well. He had a kind of ease in his gait that is hard to describe. Equilibrium with no stricture, but couched in the lineup in football. He was the epitome of concentration, wary with an effect of plenty in reserve. It's a beautiful description, probably better than any sports writers. And you're holding the book. I mean, just look at that. Just look at that cover and you see all of that, you know, I mean, just he radiates this, uh, sense of power in reserve and electricity. It takes Hollywood 20 years to finally make the movie of Thorpe's life with the bitterly ironic title, Jim Thorpe, All-American, uh, which I believe you have watched more than any other person alive today. Uh, it's generally sympathetic, but inherently false because it makes Pop Warner not just the narrator, but the hero of the story. Uh, completely whitewashes his complicity in yep. the Olympic saga. Thorpe was nominally an advisor for the movie. Did the studio not know the truth or did they know and just not care? Well, by that time, Jim Thorpe was in his 60s. He didn't look like he had, um, you know, when he was the great athlete. He had a third wife who was his business manager and promoter. And the studios thought she was a total pain in the butt, didn't want anything to do with her. So they really didn't want much to do with Jim either. Um, you know, he was on the set a little bit. He talked to Burt Lancaster, who played him in the movie. Lancaster, of course, is a, an authentic movie star, you know, um, and was a good athlete. But he was white. He's not a Native American um, playing a Native American. Um, he was 37 years old. Um, playing Jim Thorpe starting at age 16 when he got to Carlisle, you know, so there's a little problem there. Um, but, no, they they wanted, you know, they struggled with Thorpe's later life. How will they present it? Um, how can they make, um, you know, their movie audience buy into this story? And they settled on a phony story of Pop Warner as the narrator and the savior. You know, that if only Jim had listened to Pop Warner and more successfully assimilated into white society, he wouldn't have had the troubles that he faced. Um, and I don't think they knew at all about the real Pop Warner and what he what he had done to Jim and had done to other um, Native American athletes at Carlisle, by the way. There was an investigation, a congressional investigation in 1914, two years after Jim was gone, where it was revealed that Pop Warner was you know, uh, betting on games, Ill selling tickets in hotel lobbies, and mentally and physically abusing his players, who eventually turned on him because of that. And but then, by then, he was off to where Pitt or 
Well, first he was at Pitt, then Stanford. By 1951, his career was over too, but um, but he, had, he was incredibly successful after that investigation. He sort of, the superintendent was fired because of it for all of the awful things that were going on at Carlisle. Thor, um, Warner was allowed to leave and ended up at Pitt where, you know, he was a great inventive coach and he, he led Pitt to a couple of uh, national championships and then went to Stanford and finally Temple. So, so Patsy apparently thought Lancaster did okay, even though he was a communist. <laughs> Patsy Thorpe, Jim's third wife. Yeah, that's in one of the letters, right? <laughs> and and as to Patsy, Jim Thorpe was such a mythic figure that a lot happened to him even after he died. That's for sure. And this part of the story really is tragic. Yeah, I think it is. And I don't blame this on the town where his bones ended up. Um, but the story is that after he died, uh, he wanted to be buried in Oklahoma. Um, his coffin was taken back to Oklahoma. It was in the middle of a Sack and Fox ceremony, um, an overnight ceremony where his spirit would be released. When Patsy showed up and took his coffin away, um, unhappy with the way Oklahoma, the state, was offering to, to honor him with a mausoleum and so on, and started looking around for a better deal. And she took him to, or his body, to Tulsa, to Pittsburgh, to Philadelphia. Finally heard about these two down-on-their-luck twin towns in the Pocono Mountains, Mock Chunk and East Mock Chunk, Pennsylvania. And went up there and persuaded them that if they changed their name to Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, they could have him. And there'd be a mausoleum there. She promised all these other things. I compare it to Harold Hill and the Music Man. You know, she said that there'd be a hospital, a Jim Thorpe hospital, a Jim Thorpe college, and um, she would set up a an Indian style um, resort there. And then maybe the Hall of Pro Football Hall of Fame would be there. None of that happened, but they did end up with Jim Thorpe's bones and a little mausoleum on the side of the road. And they changed their names to Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, a place he'd never visited in his entire life. And some of the descendants tried to re is it would it be repatriate the, the, yeah. the bones to Oklahoma? Yeah, Oklahoma, yeah. They, the, the sons, it was a split in the family. The three daughters um came to accept it. They did some ceremonies at the in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania, and said, This is where he is. Um, the four sons who had much more bitter feelings about Patsy Thorpe, the third wife. They were, they were, they were the products of the second wife, so it was closer in time, hated her and wanted nothing to do with her. And they're the ones who Thorpe had said he wanted to be buried in Oklahoma. And they went to court, um, filed suit, won the first uh, round, was overturned on appeal. The Supreme Court wouldn't hear it. So he's stuck there. It, it, there's no more um, court action about that. Um, so Why she wouldn't even let the ceremony finish in Oklahoma, e even if she was going to ultimately take the body and do something wrong with it, the fact that she wouldn't let the purification ceremony continue to its end, th that is just staggering in its heartfulness, heartlessness. Yeah, it's a pretty difficult moment for all the people who are there to see uh, this woman with a few uh, thugs come in and take the coffin away. You obviously had a general working knowledge about Thorpe before you started the research. As you got deeper and deeper into it, what surprised you the most about what you learned? Uh, Stu, I, I always answer that question the same way. Everything surprises me. I try to approach each book as though I know nothing um, and get rid of all my presuppositions um, and look at everything afresh. I guess I would say, you know, probably the true story of Pop Warner and how, how Jim Thorpe was shafted in the medal ceremony. Uh, that, that I didn't realize the depths of that um, wrongdoing. Um, just all the people he encountered in his life, you know, was kind of amazing and and thrilling and stunning. You know that you name a famous person, and Thorpe probably either acted with him or played football against him or met him in some fashion. Um, 
so that was I didn't I didn't realize how much I could use his life to sort of weave through uh, American life in that period. I thought it, it the, the stories about Bob Hope and Ted Williams did yeah. wonders for their reputations. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, I didn't know. I mean, I, I think Bob Hope actually treated Jim Thorpe well. And Ted Williams, you know, for all of his uh, sort of uh, reactionary politics in other ways, was very good on the issues of race. You know, he was he was part Mexican-American and was very was very good with the African-American players and with Jim Thorpe and and really honored Thorpe. Well, after 13 books and at least one more to come, your part two of your Obama biography, do you consider yourself first and foremost still a journalist or do you consider yourself primarily an author? Uh, I don't know that I make the distinction. Um, I mean, I certainly spend a lot more time writing books than I do writing journalism, um, but I try to approach everything the same way. Um, with the same level of research and depth, it just depends on how much time you get. Um, so I don't, the transition for me, because I had written so many longer pieces and biographical pieces and um, sociological pieces for the Washington Post over many years, um, the transition to writing books was not as hard as I thought it would be, but I definitely love writing books. There were times, in terms of telling stories, there were times that Thorpe became the storyteller of his own legend and repeated apocryphal stories about hitting home runs in one game into three separate states or right. a particular set of touchdown runs. Did there come a point where he believed those stories were true or did he know he was embellishing and just went along with it because that's what people expected to hear? You know, I've encountered that so many times um, in my reporting, you know, I mean, Barack Obama would tell stories about his family that maybe he hadn't checked out um, that proved to be uh, apocryphal or mythological. Bill Clinton, I mean, I, I find that sort of common among, especially among great people, because there's so many stories that are told about them. And then they retell the stories. Um, it's not to excuse it, but I don't consider it a major sin. Um, and in the case of Thorpe and those stories, I, whether he, in some way, he must have known, um, but what the heck? <laughs> you know, don't, let the, don't let the truth get in the way of a good story, right? <laughs> Be, between the truth and the legend, print the legend. Yes. Uh, finally, Jim Thorpe died of a heart attack in his trailer home in Lomita, California in March 1953 two months before his 66th birthday. If you could arrange a tear in the space-time continuum, what would you ask him? Oh, boy. Um, you know, it probably, it would probably be more about his experience at Carlisle. I mean, I think, I think that's at the center of this book. Um, you know, I, I think I, I sort of know from the letters that I got what his internal struggle was was after that. But I just want to know what, you know, I just want to know. I would love to talk to him about the, the, the Olympics, you know, and going over there and, and each, you know, going over each of the events. And I sort of I would like to get down into the detail. That's, I, you know, sometimes I want to know, appear somebody inside their biggest struggle. I think I know that with Jim. So I just want to sort of talk about some of that, those great moments. Well, it was an extraordinary life and it is an extraordinary biography. The early, it is already a New York Times bestseller and the early betting is that it will be a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize oh, in biography. Don't say that, <laughs> please. You heard it here first. I, I'm afraid that is all the time we have with David Marinus. Again, the book is Path Lit by Lightning. Oh, before we go, explain the title. Yes. Um, Path Lit by Lightning is a poetic translation of his Sac and Fox given name, Wathohuk. Um, it's often shorthanded to Bright Path, which I don't find very interesting. So when I saw that one of the translations was Path Lit by Lightning, I went with that because it sort of illuminates everything. And you also like those four word 
title. Yes, I do. <laughs> March to the Sunlight, first in his class. Absolutely. <laughs> As I say, it is uh, just out from our good friends at Simon & Schuster, available from booksellers everywhere. And since this is a five Monday month, I'll be back next week with another former Capital Times writer who lasted there far longer than either David or I, Rob Zaleski, for a conversation about his new book, David Cooper, Beyond the Badge, Reflections of an Ex-Cop. It's a series of interviews with former Madison police chief turned Episcopal priest David Cooper. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Sholly Pittman, Engineer Chuck Cademan, and all of us here at Madison BookBeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as our friend Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding-White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored community radio. Mm-hmm.